Matthew 24, 15. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, you are worthy. Your son, the lamb, is worthy to open the scroll. A passage right out of Revelation 5, and we're really interacting with Revelation 6 onward. So it sets the scene. Sets the scene of the text that we are looking at today. Father, as we talk about the end times, we pray that we would not be driven by the details in which sincere believers, godly, wise, learned believers might disagree. But Father, let us agree on the major issues and let us know the difference to hold our convictions well, but also to know that there are major issues that we must agree on and minor ones where we try and understand to the best of our ability your inspired and errant word, but with humility we know that someday we're going to say, oh, and maybe have a few details that need to be altered by your truth. Give us that wisdom today. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. When I have the privilege of leading tours in Israel, I'll lead another one this coming March and April. I always take my groups to the Temple Mount. We almost always approach from the Jewish sector, which means we are within a couple thousand yards of the Western Wall, and we come across the menorah. The menorah is not only an ancient symbol of Israel and a modern symbol of modern Israel. It's actually a Hebrew word that means lampstand. And the original menorah had seven branches, the center being the western branch. Understand what the menorah is. It's an accoutrement that is necessary in the temple. And we are told that another temple is coming. Ezekiel 40 to 48 and 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 4. And so a number of Jews, as well as some Christians, are preparing for that third temple, and the menorah is created. It is an exact replication of what we are told to build in Exodus 25, 31 to 40. Now put that menorah back up for a moment. That picture is of something that is just opposite the western wall. That is seven feet tall. That is made of pure bronze, overlaid with a talent of 24 karat gold. A talent is 95 pounds. So over the bronze, you have 95 pounds of 24 karat gold. Obviously that is in bulletproof, glass that sits opposite the western wall exactly on the height of the temple mount so as you approach the temple mount from the jewish quarter you see that you pass that we read exodus 25 31 to 40 and then we head down into 
the area where the gathering is to the Western Wall, and then we go up on the Temple Mount. And the menorah represents the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of Almighty God, because the temple was the earthly dwelling place of God. We've had two temples, one destroyed in 586-587 B.C., and the other destroyed in A.D. 70. We haven't had a temple since, but we're going to have a third temple. And as we approach the Temple Mount, we see that, and I'm always excited. And then we go up on the Temple Mount. It's 37 acres. It's where the first temple, the second temple stood. It's where the third temple will go. Now, if you've seen pictures of Jerusalem, it's almost always from the Scopus view down, and you see the dome on the rock. It's that gold-faced emblem. It is actually a mashad. Some people will say it's an Islamic temple. It is not. It is a mashad, which means it's a place of pilgrimage. It was built in 691 AD for Muslims to come. As a pilgrimage, it's a place where Muslims desire to come once in their life. It's their third most sacred site. But I'm not excited about the Temple Mount because of the dome on the rock. There is actually an Islamic mosque up there. It's called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's in the opposite side of the 37 acres. You'll read on the internet that it houses 5,000 worshipers. Actually, it houses 10,000. There's a reason they say five rather than 10, because it was illegally expanded against law over a three-week period from like one in the morning to five in the morning when nobody noticed that they were digging up the Temple Mount. But that actually is a mosque. So when you go up on the Temple Mount, you have a mashad, a place of pilgrimage, you have a mosque. But that's not why I'm excited when I go up there. I'm excited because the third temple is going there. And some will say, well, to build the third temple, you've got to get rid of either the Al-Aqsa Mosque or the Dome on the Rock Mashad. No, no. If you've been up on the Temple Mount, 37 acres, there is plenty of space for yet a third temple. And in fact, very early on, that third temple will be ruled not by God. It should be, but it will be ruled by Satan. And I don't think he has any intent of removing the mosque or the mashad because one of his intents, we'll see this in today's text, is to unify the world under one leader himself and to unify the world under a syncretistic religion. How better to do that that on 37 acres that has places of worship for the two largest, most influential religions and throw in Judaism to boot. I don't think he has any intent of destroying either the mosque or the mashad. I think the third temple will be there to syncretize those and other religions all under his rulership. The last thing I love, I love going up there because I love seeing where the temple will be built. The last thing I love about the temple worship 
the temple area, is it's kind of a juxtaposed between ancient Israel and modern world. So you have a number of individuals standing in front of the kotal, that's the western wall. We very incorrectly call it the wailing wall. We do that because the Haredi, the Haredi are those Jews in Israel that are still faithful to some form of Judaism. It's about 11% of their population. Most of Israel is agnostic or atheistic. They haven't yet been regrafted into the family of God, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And so the Haredi, that's a word from Hared, it means essentially the trembling ones. They stand in front of the kotal, the western wall, and they go back and forth and they pray. And you can't mistake them, whether on an airplane or in New York City or at the western wall, you can't mistake them because the men are dressed in black. They have a long beard. They have a black fedora hat over a skull cap. The women are dressed in a very modest dress with long sleeve uh, on the arms and very modest up top. And if they're married, they have a head covering. And these individuals tremble before the Western Wall because it's the closest place they can physically get to where the temple used to stand. And so they're called the trembling ones. What are they doing? Well, not only are they praying, they often are reading Psalm 79, verse 1. O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. That's the impression that the Haredi have of what has happened on the Temple Mount. They have laid God's holy place into ruins. Or in the words of Matthew, which is the words of Daniel, the abomination of desolation has taken place on the Temple Mount. Let me read from Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. It says this. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, chapter 9, 11 and 12, standing in the holy place, that's the naos, that's the holy of holies in the temple, let the reader understand. Now, if you and I are reading Matthew 24 and 25 for our devotions, the Olivet Discourse, chances are real good we're going to read verse 15 and move on. Because what on earth does it even mean? The abomination of desolation in the holy place. But what does the parenthesis say? Let the reader understand. Slow down. Think through what does this verse really mean? What are we being taught by the Lord? Well, we've already come to see in the last few weeks in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, that what Matthew often does is he talks about an event near to him that's a microcosm, that's an illustration of something that will happen far from him. Revelation 6 to 18, during the tribulation, the time period where God will unleash 21 judgments, seven seals, seven trumpets, 
seven bulls. So what he does is he gives us an illustration, a microcosm of something big that's going to happen in the macrocosm, something that illustrates a yet future event. That's exactly what he does here. So let's start with some definitions. It says the abomination of desolation. The abomination is a word both in Hebrew and in English, not to mention Greek, that means a foul thing. In fact, if you were to look up in a lexicon, a Hebrew or Greek dictionary, what is abomination? It would mean a foul thing, something that is distasteful. And desolation means to destroy. So the abomination of desolation is a phrase used in the Hebrew and Greek language to describe something that is a foul thing, a distasteful thing, that destroys the divine purpose of a place. That's the abomination of desolation. What is going to be destroyed is the temple of God. Not yet rebuilt, the third temple is coming. And when it comes, the temple should be to worship God. But what we're going to have is a foul thing and the destruction of the temple because it will be made to worship Satan. He will be using it as a tool to gather the world under a one world government and a one world syncretistic religion, which is why I don't believe he's going to remove the Mashad. I don't believe he's going to remove the Al-Aqsa Mosque. I think he's going to put a temple right between them, plenty of space, and join them together under a one world syncretistic religion with a new God himself. And so what we have here is Daniel and Matthew giving us an illustration that is nearer to their time. Daniel is prophesying 400 years before him. Matthew is looking back about 190 years in the past. They're both looking at the same event that gives us an illustration of something that is yet to come during the Revelation 6 to 18, the Great Tribulation period. What is that event? It's called the Abomination of Desolation. It took place in 168 and 167 B.C. We have a king. His name is Epiphanes or Antiochus. Epiphanes, I'll tell you what that means in a moment. The fourth. He is the ninth Seleucid king. The Seleucid Empire is Syria. At this time, Rome is starting to gain power. And we have the Ptolemaic Empire as well, the Egyptian Empire. So we've got several empires going around, and there's a pecking order. Rome, the Seleucid Empire, the Ptolemaic Empire. That's the pecking order. So we have this ninth king, Antiochus. And with great humility, he adds the name Epiphanes to his name which means the shadow of the divine. What humility. Antiochus, God the fourth. That's what he calls himself. That's what he goes by. Antiochus, God the fourth. And he wants to expand the Seleucid Empire. So we have Syria, geographically, Israel, 
Egypt. Really, Syria, Israel, Egypt, that's what it looks like. And so he takes an army. It's a quarter million men, 250,000 men. He goes down to the Ptolemaic Empire, Egypt. He's about to attack, and Rome says no. Remember the pecking order? Rome, the Seleucid, Ptolemaic. Rome says no. And Antiochus, who is, after all, a self-declared god, is a little ticked off. But he doesn't want to go against Rome. He's not interested in a fight with Rome. And so he has to leave. He has to head north, back to Syria, Egypt, Syria, what's in between? Israel. And he's got a chip on his shoulder. And he is ticked off. And he comes to Jerusalem with a quarter million men on the Sabbat, on the Sabbath. And he unleashes his men on Jerusalem. And it's a bloodbath. He murders and murders and murders. And then he goes up on the Temple Mount. And we have the second temple, the one built by Ezra and Zerubbabel in the time period of Haggai. And he goes in to the temple. And he goes into the Holy of Holies. And where God is worshipped, he sets up an altar to Zeus, Roman god Jupiter. And he sacrifices pork, pigs. Leviticus 11.7 says that's an unclean animal. So he goes in to the dwelling place of God, sets up an altar to Zeus, and sacrifices animals, and then turns the temple into a brothel. Let me read out of First and Second Maccabees. These are not biblical books, but they are historical books that give us a little bit of the history, though we can find it in multiple sources, both biblical and extra-biblical. 2 Maccabees 6.4 For the temple was filled with debauchery and reveling by the Gentiles who dallied with prostitutes and had intercourse with women within the sacred precincts and besides brought in things for sacrifice, pigs, that were unfit. That's the height of idolatry. What's an abomination? It's a foul thing. What's Desolation, it's destroying the intent of the temple of God. It is a foul thing where God is worshipped to destroy the intent of worshipping the one true God by setting up an idol to Zeus or Jupiter and then turning the temple mount into a brothel. And why did he do it? Well, we don't have to guess. We have all sorts of documents. In a moment, I'll read from 1 Maccabees 1, 41 and following. He tells us why he did it. He wants to unify the people into one government under his leadership. And he wants to unify all of the religions in the Seleucid Empire into one syncretistic religion. Let me read from 1 Maccabees 1. Verses 41 and following. King Antiochus wrote to the whole kingdom that all should be one people and everyone should leave his laws, that is their religious beliefs, 
And many of the Israelites consented to his religion and sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. That's the initial abomination of desolation. It's the illustration. It's the microcosm of what is going to happen during the great tribulation. So what happened? We have this king that says, everyone needs to be led by one person, me. And everyone needs to abandon their religious beliefs and only believe as I tell you to believe. That's the illustration of what Antichrist, the human, who is Satanized, will do. He wants a one-world religion under one leader, him, all worshiping him. So we have an illustration from 168 and 167 BC of what will happen during the tribulation period of Revelation 6 to 18. And Daniel tells us when it will happen. In chapter 12, verse 2, he says that this Antichrist will set up an image of himself, and I quote, after a season and seasons and half a season. Season is one, seasons is two, and half a season, if I get my fingers to work, goes halfway up, that is three and a half years. Because we have had 69 of Daniel's 70 weeks. They've already taken place. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. What we haven't had is the last week, seven years, the tribulation. And he tells us in a season, seasons and half a season, three and a half years into that, we will have the abomination of desolation. We will have the Antichrist set up an image of himself in a rebuilt temple, demanding worldwide allegiance to his leadership and worldwide worship of his personhood. Let me read a number of passages in several different books that all talk about the same event. Today's text, Matthew 24, 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, that little, that little example, when you think of that, Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. What do we understand? It's going to happen again. Daniel 12, 10 and 11, it says this. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, so the offerings are going to be restarted in the third temple. In fact, Ezekiel 40 to 48 tells us that. And the abomination of desolation is set up. There will be 1,290 days. Just about three and a half years into Daniel's 70th week. Halfway through the seven-year tribulation. That is when the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, the beast, the little horn of Daniel 7, all the same guy, this human indwelt by Satan, he will demand worship in a rebuilt temple. Blessed is he who waits, etc. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4, it says this. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. That's the abomination. And the man of lawlessness, that's the same individual 
That's the little horn of Daniel 7, same individual, who is the Antichrist of 1 John. The same individual as the beast, the mark of the beast in Revelation 13, 15 to 18. All the same person. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction. The son of lawlessness. Now Jesus is called the man of comfort. He's called the man of sorrows. This Antichrist is called the man of lawlessness. The man of sin. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Proclaiming himself to be God. The word temple here is naos. I think without a doubt it refers to the intersection. The holy of holies. And so what we saw in Antiochus Epiphanes IV in 168 and 67 is going to be repeated again at a global scale where we have this Antichrist demanding worship of himself. That's what's going to happen. These texts speak about these events. It's the usurping of what does not belong to Satan. Satan's an imitator, is he not? God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Satan creates an unholy Trinity. Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. God has a temple in which he dwells and in which the Shekinah presence of God, his glory reigns. So Satan needs a temple and he's going to demand worship and he's going to set up a, a likeness of himself to be worshiped. God declares that the whole world should worship him Satan will declare that the whole world worship him and he will hand out the mark of the beast. And if you don't have the mark, you will not be able to buy or sell and you will almost certainly be martyred. That's what's going to happen during that period from Revelation 6 to 18. He will usurp what does not belong to him. He will take a title, a position that is antithetical to what is right. I think of March 30. The year was uh, 1989, I believe. And we have a very ill individual, John Hinckley Jr. You remember that the president was Ronald Reagan. And John Hinckley Jr. had an infatuation with an actress named Jodie Foster. Jodie knew nothing about this. She's an innocent in this. But he thought, you know, what would impress Jodie Foster is if I take the life of the president. And so the president had missed or had just finished a speaking engagement at the Hilton in Washington, D.C. And John Hinckley was ready and took six shots at the president. He hit the president and due to some miraculous and wise intervention, by secret service agents, three of whom took bullets. Tim McCarthy took a bullet in the chest for the president, but yet later recovered. But the president himself did not die, but he was hurt and he needed surgery. And so he was put under. And do you remember what Alexander Haig, his secretary of state did? It's almost unthinkable. I think he failed civics 101 
to the media, he said, I am in control. Now, I think he was trying to settle a nation, a nation that had its president under, and he wanted them to know, he wanted us to know somebody was in control. But that's the wrong person. Who is in control if the president goes down? The vice president was George Bush. But Alexander Haig, probably with good intent, usurped a position that was not his. It was an illegal act. It was a lawless act. Well, to a much greater extent, that's exactly what Satan will do. He has always wanted worship. Think of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 that talk about the time when he was the highest created being and he wasn't satisfied being the highest created being. He wanted to be what? Just like God. He wanted the worship of God. He wants to usurp the position of God. Our allegiance is ultimately only to God and yet he wants it. And so in a lawless act, in a rebuilt temple, he will set up a likeness, an image of himself, and demand that we worship him. Well, I want to end with three thoughts. The first one is this. It's not a secret that I hold to a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial point of view. That means that I believe that the Lord will remove his church prior to Revelation 6 to 18. I've already given a couple reasons why I hold this, but I want to give another reason today. I don't think that I could square what I've just read in Daniel and Ezekiel and Matthew with a mid-pre-wrath or post-trib position. This is my logic. We are told that we cannot guess the day or the hour. In fact, let me read a little bit from Matthew 24, today's text. I'll read a little bit ahead. In Matthew 24, uh, verse 36, it says this, But concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father knows. We're talking about the time of Christ's return. No one knows, not even the angels. But if we have a rebuilt temple, and if we have an antichrist who is setting up an image of himself, and Daniel tells us it'll occur at a time and times and half a time at three and a half years, and he tells us it's in 1,290 days, when I see things starting to set up, I'm going to be able to guess, at least with some approximate time period, that Jesus is about to come, if I believe in a mid-trib position. A pre-wrath is a mid-trib position plus about two weeks. So it's even harder for them. A post-trib position is the most difficult because that's Jesus returning at the end of seven years. Well, if I get to 1,290 days and we have an image set up of the likeness of Satan, won't I know that I have to wait three and a half more years for the Christ to return? And yet, what does the text tell me? Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, 
until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came. So it started raining and they still didn't get it. It's not until the waters start to rise that they say, you know what? Is this what Noah's been talking about for the last like 120 years? I think it's about to occur. It comes upon them and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 44, the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I am not pre-trib because I believe that God would not allow his church to suffer through the tribulation. That's insulting to Christ's followers in the Sudan or Eritrea or Chad or Saudi Arabia or China. Christians are suffering like that. I'm pre-trib because it's the best way for me to synthesize all of Scripture and the suddenness, like birth pangs, like a thief, like in the days of Noah. It's the best way for me to synthesize all of Scripture. Is this a dividing issue? It's not. A dividing issue attacks the character of God. A dividing issue attacks salvation by faith in Christ. A dividing issue attacks inerrancy and inspiration. A dividing issue is the Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and simultaneously one. A dividing issue is not believing that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that we are utterly sinful in need of a Savior, and we have the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, who the sinless one went to the cross and died as a payment of our sin and rose again offering salvation for all who believe by faith in Jesus Christ. A dividing issue attacks the character of God, the character of Scripture, the character of the atonement. This is a timing issue. It's a timing issue. So if my brothers and sisters hold to a different view, I think we're going to get to heaven and we're going to say, oh, I got that right. Oh, I got those three things wrong. I think that's what's going to happen. I really don't believe I've got all the details right. It's my attempt to synthesize Scripture to the best of my ability. But I have, I have no sense that I got it all right. In fact, I'm sure I don't. I might have this right. We'll see. If I do, you mid, pre-wrath, and post-trib people, I'm sure there'll be a tent and an outhouse waiting for you. The mansions will be taken, but there'll be a place for you nonetheless. My second point. Right now, you and I live in the age of grace. When we die, we cease to be in the age of grace. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that, the judgment. During this time of grace, we need to make sure that we have personally, individually placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned, all have fallen short, of God's glory. 1 John 1.8, 1 
If I say that I have no sin, I'm a liar and the truth is not in me. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 10.9 and 10, if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, then I will be saved. For the heart one believes and is declared righteous and with the tongue one confesses and is saved. This is a time of grace. Make sure, don't leave today without confessing, agreeing with God that you, I, we are sinners in need of a savior and accept what Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, fully God, fully man, he died as a payment of sin for us, conquered death, rose again, that if by faith we would believe in him, we would be given eternal life. Believe in Jesus. It's a free offering for all of us. And finally, during this age of grace, who do we know that needs to know the gospel? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so who do you know? Family, friends, coworkers, people in the same recreation sphere, who do you, I know, that needs to know Jesus during this time of grace? Share the gospel. Bring someone to church. So they'll hear the gospel. Share the good news of Christ. Know the gospel. Share the gospel. We might have some of the end time details a little bit right, a little bit wrong, but we know that Jesus is coming. He's coming. Are you ready? To the people you, I know, are they ready? Let's pray. Father God, uh, we want to be ready. And we ask, Lord, that if someone here today does not know Jesus as Savior, that today would be the day that they say, yes, by faith, I accept Jesus' death as a payment of my sin, his resurrection as evidence of life after the grave, come into my heart, forgive me, be my savior. And Father, reveal to us who we know that needs to know about Jesus and allow us to share about Jesus. Give us boldness. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen.